Let's open to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 today. Let's stand as, uh, if you're able, and I'll read the word of God. Lord, grant us today understanding to this particular passage and all that we look at, that we might know what it is that you call us to do with the mouths that you have given us, that they might reflect what you have done in our hearts. Send your spirit to give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, let your, speech, <clears throat> let your speech always be with grace, seasoned at it, as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. You'll notice in verse 6, it says your speech should always be seasoned with salt. It doesn't say it should be salty. Like a uh, sailor, a salty speech. Not like that, but seasoned with salt. And now, uh, you know, if you do any cooking, uh, almost universally speaking, the ingredient that goes into everything is salt. Okay? Pancake mix. A pinch of salt. Um, uh, some, I had a, a friend that was my, my, my dad's age in Pennsylvania, and I saw him have a hamburger one day. And, of course, his onion was, was a half an inch thick, and then he took the salt shaker, and he's talking to us. And he's going like this with a salt shaker. And I thought, his blood pressure must be, you know, his head must be ready to explode. But, no, he has very low blood pressure and dislikes salt. Okay, but salt seasons things. And we'll look at that in just a moment, how our language should season things. Mark Twain said that he could live a whole month on one good compliment. Okay? How do you feel when you get a compliment? Okay? You feel good. How do you feel when somebody shoots you down? Well, you, you feel shot down. Okay? And the question is, what is it that believers should do with our mouths? Remember, we have been made new, a new heart. We've been given new clothes, we've been given new attitudes, and now those things should be reflected in the way that we speak. So we should be given a new tongue. Now, we're given the ability to have the new tongue. The question is, do we exercise that ability? Now, as, as most of you know, I grew up in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. And in Pittsburgh, believe it or not, we have an accent in Pittsburgh. Um, and I've tried my best over the 14 years that I've been in the South to uh, purge myself as much as possible of my Pittsburgh accent and take on a more Southern accent. Now, it, when the problem is when I go back to Pittsburgh for more than three days, I find myself slipping into old habits. 
Like, we're going downtown, and uh, the uh, yins, that, that's you all, okay, but it's yins up there, and I, I fall back into those bad habits. And if I meet someone who's from Pittsburgh, who still lives there in some place else in, in the country, you can always tell where they're from, because it's a particular accent. Well, James tells us the tongue is like a rudder. We've learned in, as we studied James uh, uh, in Sunday school all, all summer, the tongue is like a rudder. It's very small, but it steers the ship. It's like the bit in the horse's mouth. It's very small, but the horse goes because the bit, uh, the rider and the bit guide it. Okay? So what do we do with our tongue? What do we do with our tongue? Well, we look at the perfect example. There was, uh, James says, if anyone can control his tongue completely, he is perfect. There was only one perfect individual. That was Christ. Now, what was his tongue like? What kind of things came out of his mouth? How did he speak? What did he emphasize? What were his objectives in conversations? Now, we have to look and say, are those my objectives in conversations? Do I speak those same types of words that Jesus spoke? Do I make people, am I enabling people to live for an entire month on a compliment? Or am I more of a negative individual when I speak to them? Our passage tells us that the man who has a new mouth must speak with a decidedly Christian accent. His words, his attitudes, all that come from our mouths must be salted, must be geared towards, must include those things which are particularly Christian. Particularly Christian. And let's look, we'll start in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote yourselves to prayer. Continue in prayer. Persevere. Continue. Um, be committed to uh, almost a continual state. We find in Scripture and other places, it says, be always in prayer, constantly in prayer. Now, how do you be constantly in prayer? Well, do I have to be on my knees? Should I never leave the house? Should I always be in prayer that way? It's not quite what it means. It means that we should have, in a sense, an, an attitude Uh, a mindset of always being on the verge of a conversation with our Heavenly Father. That at at the drop of a hat, we should be ready to go to shift conversation from the person that we're in, in with to our Heavenly Father. We're driving down the road. We see something, we see an accident. We should be immediately in prayer for the people in the accident. We are in our daily lives. If we're going along, we see something joyous, we should give thanks to the Lord. It should not be, well, when I get home, in my prayer time, before I go to bed, then I'll thank the Lord for all those things that I saw. That's, that's not what, it, what we are to do. Always be in an attitude of prayer. It should be right here at the front of our minds that our Heavenly Father is so close to us, that our relationship is so intimate with him, that we can naturally go right into prayer at the drop of a hat. It should be seasoned with thanksgiving. Now, if you like, you can turn over to Psalm 69. And we certainly won't read the whole of Psalm 69. But it's important to see what that means. With thanksgiving. Well, some pretty tough things in my life, Rand. How am I, you know, should my attitude be of thanksgiving? Should thanksgiving come from my mouth? If I know that I'm in the midst, if all, mom, all my friends see that I'm in the midst of terrible struggles and, and perhaps uh, I've got a disease or something like that and, 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 and I go around just thanking God all the time, is that disingenuous? No. 
But like David in Psalm 69, he spends the first 29 verses of this psalm bemoaning the fact that he is struggling, bemoaning the fact, uh, let's start at at verse 1. Save me, O God, from the waters have... For the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. It goes on and on like this for 29 verses. And then just flip the page and see in verse 30. I will praise the name of the God with song. I shall magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please God, please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise he who are his who are prisoners. Okay, so what we have here is is for twenty nine verses. David is just he's not happy because all things seem to be pressing against him, and he's in the midst of struggle. But underneath all of that is this proper attitude of thanksgiving. Yet he is reminded, even in the midst of this, even though things look bad right now, I know, this is paraphrasing what David is saying, I know that the Lord saves those who are his. I know that the Lord strengthens those who call upon his name. I know the Lord never deserts me or forsakes me, and I give thanks for all these things. So that needs to be like like prayer, constantly in prayer, right at our foreminds, ready to go into prayer at any moment, we need to have that underlying all that we do, an attitude of thanksgiving. For no matter where we are and what's going on, the Lord does not desert us, does not forsake us. He is always there with us, and we need to be thankful for that. So those are the first two things that come from the tongue that is given to us, a new tongue that comes with the believer. That we are to, in a sense, put on this new tongue. Devote yourselves to prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, the second thing we find is still dealing with prayer in verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well. That God may open to us a door for the word. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now here Paul is saying, pray for me, that I can open my mouth and proclaim the gospel. Now, it wouldn't be such a strange thing if we didn't know where Paul was at this point. Paul, as he writes this, is chained to a Roman guard in a house in Rome. Okay? Now, Paul is saying, why don't you pray for me that I will have unfettered an unfettered proclamation of the gospel, even though my body is chained to this guard, pray for me that I can proclaim the gospel. Let me give you a little history on how Paul got to that spot. Okay. Acts 21, it begins. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Now, he has just been on a a circuit to the churches in the Gentile lands. And Paul has been collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is, in a sense, the mother church. That's where, um, and day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, and you have Jews that have been converted to Christians. And they are a little suspect of the Gentile churches that have started up in the areas outside of Jerusalem. They're a little suspect of them. So Paul has been sent on this missionary journey, and he has been collecting an offering in these Gentile churches to bring this back to the church in Jerusalem that is under pretty dire persecution at this time. 
So he brings this back, and it is a joyous time because the Gentile churches have just given more than abundantly they have given. And the the Jews in, in Jerusalem are seeing this, so it's a great time when Paul arrives. But an accusation is made against Paul that he t- took a Gentile into the temple area. And so uh, they all want his head. It says in, in, in uh, Acts, And all the city was moved, and the people ran together and took Paul and threw him out of the temple, and they went about to kill him. Well, there was no Gentile there, okay? But you know how rumors spread. It spread like wildfire because that was a desecration of the temple. So he's taken prisoner, and this is the beginning of the long imprisonment of Paul. He makes a defense. He's finally taken out of Jerusalem because there were too many plots against his life. He's taken north to Caesarea, and there he gives a defense of the Christian faith to Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and finally realizing that he is not going to make any progress, he appeals to Caesar. You appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go, and off he goes to Rome. Now, along the way, he becomes shipwrecked and all these uh, adventures you can read between uh, Acts 21 and 28. And finally, he arrives in Rome, and he is taken to a house which he has to rent, and he is chained to at least one guard, and for two years, he waits there in Rome. Now, what is so important about Rome? Rome, the golden days of Rome are gone. The dictators had usurped the power, really, of the Senate and of the people. The republic is gone by now. Despotism uh, ruled, and Paul is placed in this situation in Rome. Nero is the ruler at that time. He's murdered his mother, Agrippina. He's murdered his wife, Octavia. Um, Debauchery runs Rome. There are approximately two million people in Rome at this time. More than half of the people in Rome were slaves, More than half were slaves. Out of those who were not slaves, 700 were senators, 10,000 were what was known as knights, 15,000 were soldiers, and the rest were poor. So Rome, the beauty and the glory that Rome was, was really centered on a very small group of very powerful people. Everybody else was a slave or was poor. And into this debauchery, Paul is a prisoner But he is free to proclaim the gospel. There are no hindrances upon him during this time. So imagine being a guard and your job is to be chained to Paul for eight hours to make sure he doesn't get away. Or your job is to watch him in his room for eight hours. And what does Paul do? Paul's going to turn the gospel loose. I wonder how many guards came to Christ during that time. How many cycled through Paul's presence and heard the gospel again and again and again. We know that slaves came, uh, you know, Onesimus, the slave, came to him and became a believer at that time. During this time in Rome, Paul writes um, Colossians, he writes Ephesians, he writes Philippians, and he writes Philemon. So was Paul productive for the gospel during this time? Sure was. Okay. The prayers of the Colossians, the work of the gospel went forward. Verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Verse 5 answers the question, how are believers supposed to respond to unbelievers? How are we supposed to speak to them? 
First, wise behavior. Okay? Conduct yourselves wisely towards those outsiders. Wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rules aren't quite clear. You remember, uh, I think it was last week, we talked to um, all the children who were still under their parents' roofs. And we said, God has placed you there and, and entrusted them with authority so that when the scripture is not explicitly taught, so if you have an issue that is not explicitly taught in scripture, you can rely upon the wisdom and judgment of your parents, that they may give you that implicit teaching. And they stand, as it were, in the stead for the Lord at that moment. Well, wisdom is conducting ourselves in a way that is uncompromising in scripture, but also is able to communicate what we know to be true in the gospel to those who don't believe. Okay? I don't think it's very wise just to walk up to people and buttonhole them and beat them over the head with the gospel, whether you've met them or not. It's wiser to address it in a, in a more appropriate way, uncompromising of the truth, but in a more appropriate way. That's how that comes from wisdom. So where do we find wisdom? Two places. Meditation on the scripture. Psalm 19 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And I'm so glad. Because I've been pretty simple in my life. I like things simple. But the gospel makes us wise. Secondly, prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, what are we supposed to do? Ask God. That's it. That's what it says. That's what scripture says. If you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. Now that seems so simple, but yet it is so true. For he is the purveyor of wisdom. He is, he understands all things. If you have, if you are lacking wisdom, then you simply should ask the Lord and he will provide it. He will provide it. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. Now, I started it. What do we do with salt? We put it in everything. It enhances the flavor. It makes things taste better. So our language should make the gospel appetizing. Now think of the language that you use. Think of your conversations. Does it make the gospel appetizing? Does it make it sound like something somebody else would want? Now, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Food Network. Okay? I watch, watch a lot of cooking shows. Um, and, and one of the jobs of those people is to make what they're cooking sound really good. Okay? So you've got, there's, there's one English guy, and he's always cooking outside, and it's lovely. Oh, isn't this lovely? And we put the arugula in, and it's lovely. Okay? And all that. Uh, you've got other people who, who go, well, how good does that look? I don't know. How good does it look? I won't see it. Uh, you've got, um, uh, who's the guy? It's the ultimate. Uh, Taylor's ultimate. Um, and, and, and so it's the ultimate pot roast. You know, you take a piece of beef and you, you put salt and pepper on it and you cook it for two hours with potatoes and carrots and it's the ultimate pot roast. But he does something special to it to the point where I, I go over to the computer and I look up the recipe because I want it. I want the pot roast. Do we make Christianity sound as good as the ultimate pot roast? Okay? 
Now, it's, it's not uncommon for new believers to be so excited about their faith that, that they do. But we who have been believers a long time, you know, there's joy in our hearts. We don't doubt that. We know these things to be true, but we fall into complacency with what we say about it. We need to make sure that those around us understand that we have tasted the Lord and he is good. Our language needs to be seasoned with the salt that makes Christ appetizing. We don't have to go to hyperbole. We don't have to overemphasize things. We don't have to dress him up. He is good just as he is. Okay, just as he is. So Paul's advice here is the best way to prepare to be an advertisement to the satisfying taste of Jesus Christ and the gospel. We need to be in the word. We need to be on our knees before the Lord, filling our hearts and minds with wisdom so that it comes out of our mouths. We have to understand that if we are new creatures in Christ, new creations in Christ, it must come from our tongue. We've talked about clothes. We've talked about attitudes. It has to show in what we say. Now, I was in college in uh, Indiana. I was a volunteer for Youth for Christ. And I volunteered at the Madison Grant High School. Madison Grant's only claim to fame was that before it joined in unison, it was either Madison or Grant High Schools, the guy who came up with Garfield went there. Okay, you know, the character. And for his senior project, he painted on the cafeteria wall this big mural and two years before he got famous they painted over it okay so that was all gone uh but that's their only claim to fame i think uh i think james dean is is uh, buried around grant uh indiana maybe that's a little fuzzier than the other but but we're working there and i have five or six volunteers with me and we're, we're working with 100 or 125 kids every every week so imagine opening your home and having 125 9th through 12th graders come into your living room. Okay? Some of you are going, no, that's not my living room. Uh, well, sometimes we spilled over into two rooms and the stairway and everything. But here we are, and we've been, we've been working with these kids for a couple months, and we, we've we come to the conclusion that their, their language just stinks. Okay? It is not very good. And these are kids who profess to be believers, and these are kids who are, who are interested in, 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 in hearing the gospel on a regular basis, but it doesn't seem to impact their language. So in typical um, fashion, in the way that I worked at that time, uh, well, I straight ahead and figured that the Lord would protect us, okay? and we needed protection all the time because we just walked right into things. So we had this meeting. And we do some crazy crowd breakers, et cetera, and everybody's uh, pretty jazzed up and, and did some announcements, and usually that's the time where you, you try to move them into the discussion time. And um, I kind of let it go, and it got a little bit louder, and I'm putzing around here uh, doing a couple things, and it gets really loud, and I tried to quiet them down uh, just a little bit. I didn't try real hard. And then all of a sudden, my vol- one of my volunteers, who's right in the middle of the room, middle of 100 teenagers, 125 teenagers, he, he says, I just wish everybody would shut the heck up. But he didn't use heck. Okay? And he said it loud enough that two-thirds of the room could hear it. And the room went silent. And every eye turned towards him. And, you know, he was the plant. Okay? This is what we wanted to happen. And he turned beet red. You know, because he, he, he kind of wore his emotions right on his skin. He turned beet red. And everybody's staring at him. And I said, what makes the difference? 
of what he said. Well, he's, he's a campus life leader. He's not supposed to swear. What did I hear from your mouth earlier? And, and you could just see all of a sudden the light bulb went on and 125 teenagers, boing, like that. That was a fruitful discussion that night. We made some real progress there to the point that later in the week when I went to the school for lunch, the assistant principal got me in the hall. And he said, Randy, I don't know what you did the other night, but it has spread through this school. Okay? The kids that I know are believers are challenging one another to clean up their language. The kids who are believers are going around and they're, they're putting the finger on those who are swearing. And they're even getting the real rough kids and saying, can't you come up with new language? Is your vocabulary so limited that you have to use that? See? It, Christians, we have to have different tongues. We have to say different things. It doesn't mean we don't say the hard things to one another and the hard things in the world. But we say them in a way that is seasoned with grace and for the purpose of his glory. If we are new creations with new hearts, new clothes, new attitudes, it has to be demonstrated with a new tongue. Let's pray. Lord, what a great passage. So simple. If our heart is changed, our tongue will be changed. But Lord, we know that is so difficult. We turn on the television We hear language that is not appropriate. It just seems thrown in. There's no good reason to have it there, but they feel it's necessary to have it there. We're in a world where so often people do not seek to build one another up. They do not care about a compliment that might lift somebody through the day or through the week or the month. They don't think about what comes out of their mouths. But Lord, we as believers, there's a different expectation upon us. Because we know the things of Christ. Because our hearts have been changed by this wonderful and matchless grace. Because you have come upon us with your Holy Spirit. We are not chained to the things of the world. We are not held captive to type of language or type of attitude things can come from our mouths that are blessings things can come from our mouths that are encouragements those things that might tear others down it's not scriptural but it's what mom told us if you don't have anything good to say don't say anything at all lord make us mindful of what we say whether it be an exclamation, whether it be a word of encouragement, whether it be, should I say this, is this gossip or not, whatever it would be, that all of our language would be seasoned with the things of Christ, that people would hear us speak and, and want to know more about the one who's in charge of our lives, want to know more about this Christ whom we serve, And that, Lord, you would give us the opportunities to proclaim the gospel. We think of Paul in prison, and and how can he have opportunity? But yet that time in prison was so fruitful because he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, let it come from our hands and from our mouths. And would you receive the glory? We ask this in Christ's name.
Amen. With our mouths, let us praise for the singing, praise for the morning. Let's stand as we sing number five, Morning Has Broken. Morning Has Broken.